Thank you for joining the online ministry of Little River Church. May you be blessed by the Word of God. Book of Joel, chapter 1. The prophecy of Joel is short, but certainly not lacking in beauty or interest. The prophet's style is elegant, clear, and impassioned. So much so, theologians say it deserves a high place in Hebrew literature. Yet it has an unusual beginning. The prophet of Pentecost opens up under the figure of a locust plague. One so severe that the elders couldn't remember anything like it. So we pick it up in verses 2 through 4 of Joel chapter 1. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Had this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers, tell ye your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children another generation that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left the calipedal eaten. Ain't nothing left. Four stages of destruction. Preacher, you got me up this morning to preach out of Joel 1. Just stay with me. Because I'm not going to just give you a word today. I'm, I'm getting ready to prophesy into somebody's world what God's getting ready to do. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop you off right here. And I'm not going to tell you the title of this message till we get to the middle. But if you'll trust me and you'll trust God, we're getting ready to take you to a place to where God's getting ready to do something special in your life. Anybody believe it? Give him another hand clap of praise. God, thank you for your words, your promise, and your people. Let it go forth and find good ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Someone shout amen. You may be seated. In 2017, New Zealand was voted the third most beautiful country in the world. Described as having rolling green hills, majestic mountains, Turquoise skies that stretched for miles, glistening waters that shimmered like diamonds, and amazing diversity of landscape from one island to the next. Sounds like a place I want to be today. But there's something else real unique about New Zealand. If you ever go to New Zealand, they say don't expect to see many birds flying. They are grounded. One traveler said, I would approach a swarm of birds chirping and hopping along the sandy path and they would scramble out of my way without taking flight so I mentioned this to a friend I was visiting at the time and what he said was fascinating he said that New Zealand is home to more species of flightless birds than anywhere else in the world in fact over half of all birds in this country cannot fly do you hear what I said not do not fly cannot fly and the reason why is because they have no predators. Before humans inhabited this island environment, no predatory mammals existed. And even though they were built for the sky, these, these birds were safer just to stay on the ground. And no opposition eventually cost them their ability to fly. Because when you don't exercise your wings, eventually you'll never soar. I know we don't want to hear this today, but there's always opportunity in opposition. A diamond is nothing more than a clump of carbon that refused to give in to the pressure. 
But the pressure is what pulled the value out of the carbon. Who we truly are is manifested when the most pressure is put on us. Because either we break under the pressure or we come out more valuable than we've ever been before. And without a little opposition, we will never mount up with wings like an eagle. Without opposition, we will never soar. When a mother eagle senses instinctively that her eaglets are ready to fly, she disrupts the nest. With her beak, she dislodges them from the comfort of the nest and pushes them to the edge. Has anybody ever been pushed to the edge? Don't point at anybody here that pushed you to the edge. I'm talking about you personally. But eventually, the mother doesn't just push them to the edge. She drops the eaglet off the edge. It's astonishing and and, and, and magnificent, but it will also make you want to call the Animal Rights Commission and file a complaint against the mother eagle. But the mother, the mother obviously is not being cruel to her little birds. Instead, she is pushing them into the uncomfortable place of discovery because sometimes you don't know what you're capable of until you're pushed and dropped off the edge. She knows that the nest was only the crossroads through which they would grow and develop. And if they sat in the temporary, it would be at the expense of the permanent. They would have never soared if the mother would have let them stay in the nest. And in the galling winds and impending danger, they find the wings they never utilized in their previous comfort. And they find use for them as they're falling off the edge. And these little eaglets begin to flap these wings. They never knew had the power to carry them. And in the moment that they thought was going to destroy them, they begin to soar in the air. And to ensure that they will never come back to the nest, the mama stirs the nest with her beak so that the prickly briars protrude and make it impossible for them to find comfort there where they once rested i can't tell you how many times i've been forced to find my wings by the discomfort of situations that were either under my control or outside of my control can i be honest with you today i felt like an eaglet more than once forced out by many circumstances that i couldn't control and i've screamed inwardly a thousand reasons why the time wasn't right or i wasn't prepared all which may be true but there are times when we must disregard the data and distance our doubts if we are ever going to achieve a greater velocity because god wants us to soar tap your neighbor and say god wants you to soar God wants us to reach new levels and rise above what's trying to pull us down. I've learned that God uses the opposition to position me for something new and greater. And you hear me today as I prophesy to you. You were not born for failure. You were not born for depression and defeat. You are a child of the most high God. And you were born to rise above whatever's trying to pull you down. You weren't born just to go around on the ground like a bunch of chickens. You were made to be an eagle. Don't you dare stop right now preacher it's been tough you keep flapping your wings of faith you keep you keep looking for what god has in store because you hear me there's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror your future matters more than your past and where you've been is not greater than where god has taken you 
There's things God has in store that's going to shake you to your core. And you're going to say, how did this ever happen? God, I don't understand it. And God's saying, because I pushed you to that point. God has sent me here with a word today. You've been disturbed into your destiny. It's not comfortable, but it's necessary. And the enemy thought that he would destroy you. But instead, God is using the pain of your past to take you to a place that you would have never got without that pain. God is going to use this to write the greatest chapter of your life. It's not over. It's not over. God's not done. He's going to transition the painful passages of your past into a beautiful future. Just wait and see. Is anybody here glad that your story is bigger than a tough chapter? Joseph, you went through the pit. But in the next chapter, you were in the palace. In one chapter, the three Hebrew boys are in a furnace. And if you stop the chapter because it's tough, you would think they burned up. But the king said, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out the fire. And they brought all the government leaders and the king's counselors. And they gathered around them to examine them and say, surely the fire burned them. But what they discovered is that the fire hadn't so much as touched the three men. Not a hair was singed. Not a scorch mark on their clothes. Not even a smell of fire on them. So Nebuchadnezzar said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's amazing when you can go through something and come out not smelling like what you've been through. Whatever it is, you hear me today, you'll get through this. Deliverance is to the Bible what jazz music is to Mardi Gras. It's big, bold, and it's everywhere. But it's out of the lion's den for Daniel. It was out of the cave for Elijah. It was out of the prison for Peter, the grave for Lazarus, and the shackles for Paul. Because God knows exactly how to get us through some things. Matter of fact, I would say that through is God's favorite word. You thought this was the end. God said, no, you don't know what my favorite word is. I'm about to get you through it. I'm about to get you out of it. Through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death, Isaiah 43 and 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Because if God has brought you to it, he knows exactly how to write you through it. And I'm on a mission today because God has sent me here to tell someone there's a new season with fresh anointing for you today. And this anointing is going to unlock a new chapter of restitution and restoration. Now you got to hear me. This new level of anointing is not coming to everyone. I'm sorry. This ain't one size fits all. It's not coming on the murmurs and the complainers. It's not coming on the critical and the judgmental. It's not coming on the religious and self-righteous. It's not coming on the cynical and condescending. It's not coming on the lazy and the indifferent. This new anointing for a new chapter is coming on those that say, I want more of you, God. The only prerequisite is for somebody to say, God, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I need more, God. This old chapter isn't enough. I need more. Tell somebody beside you, you got to get out the way and give me some room because God is getting ready to give me more. 
gotta give me some room. You gotta give me some room. You gotta, you gotta give me some space because this, this new anointing God's putting on my life, it's so big that if it gets on me, it's gonna get on you. So if you don't want to be touched, then don't get near me. So all that to take you back to Joel chapter one. <laughs> I got you up there and we bring you right back down. A picture of desolation and destruction. 800 years before the Messiah was born, an unexpected and catastrophic swarm of locusts swept through the holy land of Judah. The land of praise was being devoured. Now I get it. Most of us don't go to sleep and wake up in the middle of the night saying I, I, I had a nightmare of locusts attacking me. Because majority of us aren't farmers. If you're a farmer, raise your hand. Exactly. Secondly, swarms of locusts have largely disappeared because of urbanization, so it's hard for us to picture it. But I promise you that our ancestors understood how devastating locusts could be. In 1875, the United States experienced the largest known locust swarm in the history of the world, 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide. Some 200,000 square miles equal to the entire combined area of the states of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Vermont. I even found an image to describe how bad it was. Here's a cartoon image found by the 19th century illustrator Henry Worrell. A Kansas foreign family fights a losing battle against the relentless locusts. History records that these noisy and whirling swarms would savage the crops of Americans and would eat anything in their path. Barley, buckwheat. I don't even know what that is. I think that's a character off the Little Rascals. But they ate buckwheat and tobacco, fence posts, and even the laundry on the clotheslines. When the pioneering women would throw blankets over their gardens, the locusts devoured the blankets, feasted on the plants, and left behind a barren landscape that resembled more of a war zone than farmland. Lauren Wilder described how the locusts attacked her family's wheat fields in the upper Midwest, millions of jaws biting and chewing, attacking and eating anything. Because locusts can eradicate and destroy in one night what took years to plan for and produce. Locusts are serious. And because of Judah's constant rebellion, continual sin, and spiritual apathy, the hedge of God is removed and the locusts annihilate the land. The plague was in four stages. You had the chewing locusts, the swarming locusts, the crawling locusts, and the consuming locusts. Now, we're not farmers, so I'm not going to give you the, the farming version of this, this message, but I am going to give you the spiritual version because it's a picture of how the enemy destroys. He does it through the chewing locusts. Micah 3 and 5 describes the forces in the world that chew on the righteous, working and gnawing on your peace of mind, your knowledge of God's ways and God's love for you. That's the chewing locust, getting on your nerves. You ever told somebody, you're getting on my nerves? That's them chewing locusts. If there's anything left, the enemy comes next as a swarming locust. You're not just... You're not just facing one locust, you're facing a swarm of destroyers. You remember Jesus taught that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, that that unclean spirit walks through the dry places for a while, but eventually he will return to his former abode. And if he finds the house empty, if it's not full of anything, because it's not good enough just to repent of something, you got to replace it with the goodness of God. He says if you... If he finds it empty, you know what he goes and does? He goes and gets seven spirits worse than himself 
and they move in. And if you let the enemy chew on you, then he brings his evil accomplices and they swarm you. Their name is Legion, for there are many. And if there's anything left, here comes the crawling locusts. You've given them permission and they take up residence. They, the torment comes, the pain comes, the addiction comes. Any square inch of territory allowed, they inhabit, they conquer, they dominate. And should there be anything left, then comes the consuming locusts. They consume you from without and within. And they finish off whatever vestige of holiness and shred of self-respect you have left. They take possession of all you have and all you are. And that's what Joel said. Joel said, whatever the chewing locust leaves, the swarming locust will attack. And whatever he leaves, the swarming locust gets. And after that, the consuming locust afterwards. Joel said, it's bad. I read somewhere that one locust plague was estimated to have 12.5 trillion locusts, each one bent on destruction. Because when one locust dies, it's not a problem. There are plenty or more where they came from. Anybody ever been there? The car broke down. The kids are having trouble in school. The roof started leaking. The job fell through. Unexpected bills in the mail. Health falls apart. Worry and anxiety swirl as what if scenarios run through our minds. Sleepless nights and troubled days. One thing after another. And you've heard the saying, when it rains... It pours because trouble always comes in bunches. It's not the one snowflake that breaks a branch. It's the cumulative effect of tens of thousands of snowflakes that bring the collapse. And the enemy is no fool. He knows well what buttons to push to break us down. He's been studying human beings for thousands of years, and he knows how to trip you and I up. Your battle's not my battle, but he knows how, the, how to send the locusts and, and where we'll allow them to get in and start affecting us. Wave after wave of devastation comes against you, and the enemy has his armies and minions of unclean spirits, impure thoughts, and hellish cohorts that come against you time after time. Listen to me. If you thought rebuking the devil one time was good enough for the rest of your life, no, ma'am, no, sir. You got to get up every morning and put your foot on his throat and say, hey, get thee behind me because I'm not going to give you a foothold in my life. And they take and they steal and they kill and they destroy. And what it took a lifetime of hard work, devotion, attention, what you gave your heart fully to, what you immersed yourself in saying today's pain is worth tomorrow's gain. Now you've watched in a moment. As the enemy took it all away. Joel described this devastation in detail. He said he lays waste to the vine. The grapevine and the fig tree. Two principal producers of food for the land were left bare. And the grain offering, the drink offering, the oil fails. Wheat and barley perish so that the wave offering is gone. Vine is dried up. Fig trees wither. Pomegranate trees. Palm trees. Apple trees. They're gone. There ain't nothing on the trees. All of the trees of the field have withered. Joy has departed from the sons of men. They're weeping because what they had planned to sacrifice. Their offerings gone. Worship destroyed. Seed corn fails. Cattle grown because there's no pasture. Nothing to eat. The sheep suffer and the brook is dried up. Anybody have been there? And before the invaders, Judah's land was like the Garden of Eden. And afterwards, it's like a desolate wilderness. And if you stop at Joel chapter one, you'll write a critical review about old Joel. Didn't like the book, Joel. One star review for you, buddy. Don't do a book reading on Facebook because you're going to get a mad face on Facebook because that was not good, Joel. 
I know God told you to write it, but you shouldn't have wrote it, Joel. You depressed a whole bunch of people. Everything's gone, Joel. We get it. The locust has took everything. There's no hope. It's over. Joel chapter 1. But you hear me today. I want to preach to somebody that we have a God that specializes in second chapters. I feel the Holy Ghost all over me right now. Look at your neighbor and say, welcome to the second chapter. The best thing about a closing chapter of your story is that there's a new chapter getting ready to emerge. Look at somebody and say, welcome, welcome, welcome to the second chapter. Hear the turning of pages. God spoke to me Wednesday night and told me it's time for what's next. This is what the Lord told me. He said, stop pulling in into your storm because he's trying to pull you out of it. Ooh, I'm telling you, you've been crying for God to come to you. And God said, if I come to you, we'll stay in chapter one. But if you'll come to me, we'll go ahead and move to chapter two. Listen, some people only know how to live in storms, but storms may be good for a season, but hey, joy still comes in the morning. There's always a second chapter. There's always a new part of the story. I refuse to live in the storm. I won't be much longer. So in the second chapter of Joel, a trumpet is sounded in Zion and the people weep between the porch and the altar and they go to prayer and fasting and they use this ordeal not to drive them farther from God but closer to him. They repent and they say, God, we want restoration. And there is a distinct break or turning point in the book. At chapter 2, verse 18, up to that verse, Joel has been speaking of the desolation that would come on Judah. But from this point on, God tells of the deliverance which he will bring to the nation. Because when you get to verse 25, you find something amazing. Joel 2 and 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten and the crawling locust and the consuming locust and the... Chewing locusts. God said, I'm going to give it all back. Chapter 1, it was all gone. But chapter 2. Come on, somebody needs to get it. Welcome to chapter 2. Welcome to chapter 2. Welcome to chapter 2. Welcome to chapter 2. God is the only one that can restore time. He's the only one that can put back things and make it look like nothing ever happened. God promises restoration in the second chapter. The enemy's devastation will be the object of God's restoration. And old Joel walks down the list, and this is what Joel tells him. He says, this is what God's going to do in chapter 2. I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and new oil. Your longing will be satisfied. He said, the beast of the field, don't panic. I'm going to open up the pastures for you. Uh, saying, them apple trees, uh, they're going to produce again. Uh, the fig tree and the vine, it's going to produce again. Uh, I'm going to bring back rain. Uh, I will bring the former and the latter. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat. 
and the vats overflow with new wine, and I will bring joy back to you. You be glad, children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice the order here. God does not remove the locust until he restores the land because the locust wasn't the issue. It was the people's will that unleashed the favor of God. And when they surrendered their will to his will, God says, I'm going to let the locust stay because I want the enemy to see what I'm capable of. And every vine the locust ate, God replaced one right there and said, you can't do anything about it. Listen, your enemy can't take anything from you. Uh, and God is stepping up and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to renew you and then I'll remove the locusts. Now, the natural order would be say, hey, remove the locusts, renew the land. He said, no, my, 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 my thought process, God is saying, is the people, not the locusts. In other words, God's focus is not the locusts. I need to be a rapper. hand over the mic. God's focus is not the locust. <laughs> the one who bids us to keep our hearts and minds on him because we are the object of his affection. He's not concerned about the six-legged creatures chewing and gnawing. He's concerned about his people saying, God, I need restoration. God, I believe you can do something great. God, I believe there's something powerful. And if you look at this word restore in the Hebrew, the word means shalom. I love that word, shalom. It means to make amends, make an end, and to give again, to recompense and to reward. Here's the unusual thing about God. It's not that he just gives back. God always gives back more than what the enemy took. The book of Job may be the oldest book in the Bible, but it strikes a timeless chord. Everything that was precious to Job, his family, his health, his livelihood was taken from him. And the book of Job reads like a tragedy until the last chapter. But God gets the last word and the best chapter is the last chapter. And you could call it the double blessing chapter because Job 42 and 10 says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much much in the second chapter you're not only going to get back what you lost but there's going to be a double and this is in direct alignment because when you study old testament law recompense meant paying back double or even four or five times what was taken if a thief stole from you and was caught he didn't have to only bring you your stuff back he had to bring back double Lieutenant Jake, if they would put that in the law right now, a lot more people would stop stealing. Look, not only you got to bring my, my stuff back, but you better go get some more stuff to bring with it because the law says you got to bring me back double what you took from me. Solomon said the thief should have returned sevenfold. Mark 10, God restores a hundredfold. Ephesians 3, it's more than you can ask or think. God gives, but God also knows how to give back. And in that restoration, the things taking from us are put back together. The wasted days are put back on the calendar. The lost years are restored. Genesis 9 and 28 said that Noah lived another 350 years after the flood. His life was better after the flood than what it was before the flood. And then you get to Jonah. He said, I ain't going to Nineveh. I don't like those people. I'm not going to preach to them. And God said, okay, get in a storm. They throw my boy Jonah off the boat. God sends a, the first submarine and it picks him up. <laughs> Swallows him up. Listen, you thought you had a bad. Wait till you get to a belly of a fish. And there Jonah starts saying, God, I'm sorry. 
God, I, I, I didn't do what you told me. Please forgive me. And God said, okay, I think you're ready for the second chapter. And God called out the problem that had swallowed this man up and forced the well to spit Jonah out. And then we read the second chapter. Jonah preached the revival in Nineveh that 120,000 people were saved. All because God, don't you dare judge me by a bad chapter in my life. Wait till you see the second chapter. Jonah said you can talk about the well, but what about the 120,000 that was saved in Nineveh? Because God is a God of second chapters. Old Naomi takes her family to Moab in the midst of a famine. She takes her husband, her two sons, and her two daughter-in-laws, and they go to Moab. Moab is a cursed place, a, a wicked place, and tragedy struck. And Naomi's husband died, and Ruth's husband died. Naomi's son, then Naomi's second son died. Three deaths in the middle of the famine. But Naomi heard there was bread in Bethlehem, so she and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned to the city. And when the pages flipped, all that's in Ruth chapter 1. If you read Ruth chapter 1, everybody's dying. Everybody. But you flip the pages to Ruth chapter 2. And Ruth entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to a man by the name of Boaz. Who was from the same family as her husband. And in the second chapter of Ruth, we're introduced to what is called the kinsman redeemer. This was an ancient provision that meant if an Israelite man were to die without having a son or an heir to carry on his family name, the next of kin could provide for the deceased by marrying his widow. And in the final verses of the book of Ruth, it's revealed a genealogy. And it tells us that Ruth and Boaz's son, Obed, would be the great-grandfather to David, the great king of Israel. But it doesn't stop there. What they didn't know was that there was even a greater descendant to come from this bloodline. Because the kingly line of David would ultimately lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be born in Bethlehem. All because God knows exactly what to do with a second chapter. Listen, don't throw in the towel just yet. Don't you give up. Don't turn the faith switch off. You've got to tell somebody, wait, 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 till you see the second chapter. Musicians, you can get ready. I'm at 31 minutes. So how's he going to do it? Well, Joel 2, verses 28 through 29 is the greatest prophecy known to mankind. And it says, and it shall come to pass in Joel 2, 28 through 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, guess what? They're going to prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men's servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. God, how are you going to do it? And God told Joel, he said, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be by my spirit. The same spirit that brewed over the, the, the desolate earth was going to be the same spirit. That was going to restore the same spirit that went moving, brought life to this beautiful world. The same spirit that had prophet Ezekiel stood in that valley of dry bones and said, you have to become a mighty army. is going to be the same spirit of restoration. Devastation will be followed by restoration in the second chapter. After the locusts come, the wind and the fire of the spirit is going to come. But it doesn't stop there. 
Joel 2 leads to another chapter 2 that gave birth to the church because the last thing Jesus does before his ascension, he says, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be a dude with power from on high. And then we turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And they said, Simon Peter, what is going on? What is this? Simon Peter said, let me tell you what it is. Verses 16 through 17. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall see shall dream, dream dreams listen and then they said well Simon Peter what must we do he said well let me give you more verse 38 then Peter said unto them you got to repent be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost you hear me today I, I don't believe in separating religion or denomination I believe the Holy Spirit is not only for Pentecostal, it's for Baptist, it's for Charismatic, it's for Presbyterian, it's for Catholic. It's not only for a Pentecostal church. But I am glad today that we are a chapter 2 church that believe you don't stop at Calvary. you got to make your way to Pentecost. Listen, Calvary will make you a beautiful butterfly. Fly, butterfly, fly. But the Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Put a butterfly in hurricane force winds. Matter of fact, get your butterfly, put it in your house, turn on your ceiling fan. It ain't got a chance. Its wings weren't built for that. But you take an eagle. An eagle soars on the resistance of the wind it uses the resistance to propel it and can I tell you God doesn't want a church full of just beautiful butterflies he wants a church full of power that knows how to soar above anything else come on this is an Acts chapter 2 church because God never we'll see in on the first chapter so I'm done let's stand the disciples could have never taken the gospel to the ends of the earth and turned the Roman Empire upside down without the Holy Spirit's empowering. That's why they were to wait until they received power from on high. Second chapter. The same spirit that blew in an upper room and brought power and strength to those men is the same spirit that we felt blow in at the beginning of this service. Lou Wallace, a famous general in literary genius was a known atheist for two years mr wallace studied the leading libraries of europe and america seeking information that will forever destroy christianity he said my mission is to make sure they understand jesus is not real but while writing the second chapter of a book he planned to publish 
he suddenly found himself on his knees crying out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And because of the solid, indisputable evidence, he could no longer deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Later, Lou Wallace wrote the book called Ben-Hur, one of the greatest English novels ever written concerning the time of Christ. So what are you trying to tell me today, preacher? This is what I'm trying to tell you, that God is in the business of restoration. You hear me? He has not marked you out of his plan and his purpose just because you have been ripped, torn, or broken by failure. God says, I've come today to promise that I'm going to restore to you the years that the swarming locusts, you thought it was over, and God said, no. Somebody needs to give him a second chapter praise for just a moment. Somebody needs to give him a palace praise. Somebody needs to let him know, God, this is what the next chapter. Come on, somebody praise him like it's over. Somebody praise him like the depression is done. Somebody praise him like the addiction is broken. Listen, I'm not talking to everybody this morning. I'm done. But I'm talking to somebody that is sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm talking to somebody that you felt like you've been stuck in a bad chapter of your life and it's never going to end. I'm talking to somebody that's been through the fire and in the pit, but you're ready today for the second chapter. You, I feel it in my spirit right now. That anointing is on its way. I feel a turning of the page right now. Everything. Sisters, what's going to happen? I told them no slow stuff. We're not going to come up here and weep for hours. I love weeping. Weeping's, I'm, call me the weeping prophet. I love to weep. But I'm telling you what I feel today. We've wept over the hurt for too long. We've carried the pain of the past for too long. God wants to know, are you ready for the second chapter of favor? That he's got, I feel the Holy Spirit. God wants to know, are you ready for what's next? Not what has been. So they getting ready to do a little, nah, nah. And while you begin to praise him, we're going to come to this front. Nobody's going to shake you. you. You praise. If you want to throw your hands up, throw your hands up. We have altar calls around here. You know why? Because the word doesn't do any good unless it finds good ground. So we come to the front to let God know the word found good ground in my life. So if you want to dance, shout, run, well, y- y'all that kind of church? Yeah, because he said he was going to restore the tabernacle of David. Not tabernacle of Moses. We're not bringing lambs and bullocks and turtle doves up here today. But the tabernacle of David, 24-7, they were in there praising. Matter of fact, when David brought the ark back, it says that he would walk six steps and he would dance with all his might. So you know what we're about to do? We're about to make the enemy sick. You know what happens when the enemy gets sick? I'm glad you asked. Job 20 and 15. He has swallowed down riches, but he shall vomit them up again because God's going to cast them out of his belly. 
when you begin to give him second chapter praise you hear me right now God's going to begin to give you favor and everything the enemy had he's getting ready to give it back your joy is coming back your peace is coming back your restoration anybody ready for the second chapter Thank you for watching today. If you would like to help us deliver content around the world online, please consider making a donation. Please go to littleriver.church and choose what option works best for you. Thank you and have a great day.